Mr. President, there are too many states nowadays. Please eliminate three. I am not a crackpot. This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 75, for the week of March 19th, 2012. I am a Jesus, care of the Pentagon, <laughs> David T. Cole, and I'm here with Cactus Punter Joe Reed. Fight, fight, fight! And yellow wallpaper peeler Tara Ariano. Can't you see her? Hello, everybody. Welcome to our second You Are Not a Crackpot episode. So excited for this one. We invite you, our listeners, to submit your I Am Not a Crackpot theories, treatises, Mm -hmm. what have you. Views, (laughs) theories. Um, Today, with addition of one from each of us here in the room, we have 17 I Am Not a Crackpot items for your consideration. So I say we just get right into it with Let's the first it. one. And just a, just a note, only Dave has heard these. Joe and yeah. I are coming to these completely cold. So yeah. our reactions to them are going to be uncoached and unfiltered. That's right. <laughs> Here we go. Our first one is from Mark. I am not a crackpot. Hey, guys, this is Mark calling in from Michigan. And I am here to tell you that I am not a crackpot just because I believe that the characters in children's animated movies should speak with consistent accents. Okay, so look at the main character in How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, He's talking like, hey guys, I found a dragon out in the woods, you know, and then the father is speaking with this Scottish brogue. I mean, how does that make sense? Well, when when he grows up and turns 18, is he suddenly going to talk like this? And then look at Ratatouille. Don't get me wrong, I love Ratatouille, it's a great movie. Uh, uh, but you got the main character, uh, Linguini, is uh, speaking in this California accent, which I don't mind, so long as his girlfriend, Colette, is not speaking like this, like she's from France. Uh, that doesn't make sense. And then you got the food critic, Anton Ego. He's like, uh, I don't like food, I love it. <laughs> Sounds like he came from London, England. Now, don't get me wrong. I've thought this through. If they were to go back and tinker with those movies and change them according to my preferences, they would not improve them. In fact, they would probably wreck them. But that doesn't make me a crackpot. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger problem with How I Train, How to Train Your Dragon, which is a great movie, it is a great movie. Really, really love it. Yeah. Um, is that they're like in you know in Norway or something, but and everyone has a Scottish accent except yeah. the kids. <laughs> Look, makes if, no sense. If we're gonna call for realism, Scottish I'm gonna say that the dragons <laughs> that the dragons should speak in consistent accent. If we really want to be like hard hitting reality, let's the dragons do don't talk, Joe. Stop being dumb. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. Stop being ridiculous. I hear his point. I, I take his point. Oh, totally. It's, tr- it's true. But it without is. evil British accent, <laughs> where would we be? What? What? Yeah. This is well, the movie shorthand. Know, how would we know? That how would a dumb guy like me guy? know that Jeremy Irons is the bad guy? <laughs> right. I mean, the, my my peeve about this is I feel like I've talked about this on the show before, but ever since Milos Forman has like broken down the barriers of like even in a period piece, yeah. let's just let everyone talk however they talk, and yeah. it'll be okay. Yeah. You'll get used to it in Amadeus yeah. you'll get used to it in um, Valmont right and then Sofia Coppola did it in Marie Antoinette and right. it's like it does work so what's the problem yeah. why doesn't everyone just do that there's no reason for Janine Garofalo to have a French accent in Ratatouille I am not a crackpot hey extra hot great it's Robbie Brown down here in Austin Texas so the studios are trying to stop their sagging box office numbers by re-releasing these huge blockbusters back into theaters in 3D 
I'm not a crackpot for asking people to avoid them. Mm. It's a no-brainer for the studios to do this. All these films have a built-in audience and awareness. They're saving hundreds of millions of dollars in production costs by simply converting a film and remarketing it as some new experience. The problem is that the 3D is lessening your experience. The picture's always underlit, and it's more expensive to buy a ticket. All these films were widely popular before 3D, so asking somebody to pony up more money for essentially a worse experience is a sham. It's worth it to note that the if the only way to get people into the theater is to show them stuff they already have on their DVD shelf, then it might emphasize the Hollywood that the new crap in theaters isn't worth anyone's time. The best solution is to not put down money for anything. Obviously, crappy scripts are being written and horrible movies are getting made. 3D isn't completely at fault here, but it's being used as the flashy thing to divert people's attention away from the bigger problem. 3D may be a quick fix, but there's only so many movies people would want to see on the big screen again for $14. So do us a favor, people. Avoid Titanic. You'd know how it ends. And prevent Raiders of the Lost Ark and Back to the Future from showing up in 3D. They weren't intended to be in 3D, and they never should. Leave the 3D to Captain EO and IMAX. If we stop showing up to stuff like this, then they might be forced to give us something good. Thanks. I've given up on 3D films just because I actually don't enjoy the right. extra dimension. Mm-hmm. I just find the picture it is. He, he does say that it is dark. Yes, the lamps are off and the wrong ones and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I just find the actual fidelity of the scene isn't there. Like It seems lower res by the time it hits your eyeballs because yeah. of the polarized glasses and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I will say with reference, I know he's just being cute about it, but with the reference to Ray's Lost Dark in 3D, huh. thankfully, I think Steven Spielberg learned his lesson with the E.T., tinkering yes and he's since kind of yeah. come out and said you know, kind of a stupid idea i regret yeah. that i you know he, i regret it, letting george lucas peer pressure me into it basically I assume is but he said the right happened. thing yeah. he said like once i put out that movie it wasn't really mine to change again because like it is it i made it but it kind of yeah right because it's like it's there it's like a classic and every yeah. it's it's part it's in your brain right yeah. and to change the the FBI guns to walkie-talkies and all that stuff wasn't the right move. So within, hopefully then, I think, you know, as long as George Lucas um, doesn't strong on him, we won't see Ray's Lost Dark in 3D because that would not improve it at all. The other thing is that, like, the the idea, I was thinking as Robbie was talking, like, I get the, the theory behind re-releasing movies to theaters in order to, you know, if you're like, uh, here's, a, here's a, a proven performer like Titanic, obviously. Yeah. Um, adding 3D is just going to make people want to see it more debatable. But... wanting to see anything that you've already seen on the big screen if you have the option of not watching it on the big screen like at this point even I've given up on the the cinema experience for the most part so revisiting a classic in a theater with a bunch of idiots (laughs) 3D or not 3D is not appealing to me at all yeah so I, I I think this is a this is a flawed theory, and I'm I'm with Robbie. And also Doug ben, Doug Benson has been anti uh, 3D on his podcast for at least a year now. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of with him too. I like that Robbie is kind of the uh, Tammy Metzler of the situation, where from the election, <laughs> where she's just like, "Who cares? Don't vote at all." It's like, "Don't go see any of them." I like that. <laughs> but it'll, it's true. Oh, like it's totally that's your true. only option, oh, really, completely to Com- make them stop doing it. Yeah. And I'm sure the answer is out there, but I've never chased it down. But you know when you recycle your 3D glasses? <laughs> yes. How do, in what state do they come back to you? This is a question. Are they just bagging them in there somehow with some, with some machine? Are the, they... the, the studies have been done that they are filthy. Yeah, okay. That's all right. Oh, yeah. Gross. All right. Blech. I am not a crackpot. I am not a crackpot. There is no such thing as a spoiler. Giving away a major mm. plot point, even giving away multiple major plot points, doesn't spoil a work of narrative art. 
If a movie, book, or TV series is spoiled by knowing things ahead of time, it must have flat characters, uninteresting settings, boring themes, inept pacing, crappy costumes, cliched dialogue, and, in all likelihood, cheap gimmicks. Spoilers have never spoiled anything for me. For example, I just finished season two of Justified. I knew well before I started the season that Mags Bennett dies. Oh, um, spoiler alert. (laughs) Anyway, knowing this ahead of time didn't lessen how much I enjoyed the show. If anything, it increased the dramatic tension leading up to the event itself. I found myself trying to guess who would do it and when it would happen. In addition to everything else enjoyable about Justified, I had a game to play, trying to figure out how they would get to an end point I knew was coming. Knowing major plot points ahead of time changes how a work is enjoyed, but it doesn't spoil it. Now, obviously, if I had gone out of my way to read, say, a Wikipedia synopsis of Season 2 of Justified, I probably would have done a good job of spoiling it for myself. But that would have taken real effort on my part. Spoiler alerts are usually issued in casual conversation, written reviews, and podcasts like Extra Hot Great, Pop Culture Happy Hour, and the like. But 15-minute detail-revealing conversations about narrative art don't spoil that art. Rather, they help a potential consumer like me evaluate the art more fully. I'm a busy person, and I don't have time to consume all the pop culture I might potentially enjoy. I frequently wait for an interesting-looking movie, book, or TV show to be reviewed and picked apart by folks like you before I decide to commit myself to it. Not only have spoilers not spoiled anything for me, they have, on occasion, saved me enormous amounts of time. I don't want to name any names, lost, but when a show goes (laughs) off the rails or turns out to have not been the product of any kind of well-thought-out plan, I would rather know that ahead of time and spend my limited time wisely. Thank you, Noah. High five and lost, Noah. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And and I can think of, as he was talking, I was thinking of examples where things that I did know kind of... Like there was Semi-spoiled. an incident, and, and Joe, I don't want to point fingers, but the the Boardwalk Empire thing. Oh, what did I do when you revealed oh, right. a, yes. a character died obliquely? Obliquely, I knew what you, but not that obliquely. Okay, it was pretty clear what I you were can't referring believe to. Of all people, you spoiler mercenary. I didn't say I was mad about it. I'm just saying <laughs> I, yeah. that episode I, there was a big twist, and yeah. I knew it was coming. Yeah. I'm not saying that you that you were like you were within your rights to say it, right? Or to, but everybody else on the entire Twitter was being like sort of cute about it, except you were like ha ha because you were mad about I was the show. Mad. That is true. I was mad. But then I was and then I thought of another thing that when we finally got around to the Wire season three, which we watched much much later than it aired, yeah. And much I guess like by the time we got around to it, we didn't even know anyone that we could talk to about it who had who had seen it recently because it was so long but there a thing happens in season three we did not know it was coming and it hit like like crazy because that was not spoiled for us so yeah. sometimes i think you know as much as it is possible to avoid it I, you would rather not know a plot twist but you're right. I, I take his point that it's like if the show is still worth watching that yes. doesn't mean it's spoiled yeah. well yeah and i think there's the the difference between i can still enjoy a show where i know what's going to happen yeah versus there is no value in not knowing what's going to happen. Right. So, and then, I, the, so the exception for me would be like, you don't want to know who's getting voted out in a reality show before totally, you watch it. <laughs> totally. And that's because there are flat characters right. and there is no point in right. watching the show I never except for the process the people, of the game. Yeah, I never know? understood the people who like sought out like the survivor elimination list. And yeah. then it's like, I guess there's an interest in terms of like reverse engineering the episode as you watch sure. it. But it's like, God, so much of the entire point of that show is... But, but I remember like Project Runway season two, it aired in Canada around the same time as it right. aired here, but it was like three episodes behind or something. Yeah. And so this was like, you know, I, 
I, as a person who was running a TV site at the time, it yeah. was very hard yeah. to remain unspoiled. And like yeah. Entertainment Weeklies and Peoples came and I just had to like set them aside oh, wow. until it aired. And I did manage to stay spoiler free. And it was one of the greatest achievements of my life. <laughs> and I will say there are, even in a scripted show, there are good spoilers and yeah. there are bad spoilers. There are spoilers, I think, that are just sort of for spoilers sake sometimes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, spoiler material. Yeah. Like Battlestar Galactica. Who's the left final Cylon? Mm-hmm. Who gives a shit? Didn't matter. Right. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Just it was just like this MacGuffin, right? It's just like this thing that happened. And to know it wouldn't change the last season for mm-hmm. good or bad. Yeah. Even though, you know, the last season was so great. Um but for something like that, I wouldn't care if I was spoiled. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I guess reality I mean, I don't care about reality TV, but right. I, I I can see that being maybe the exception. But his his just point if- that if you're writing a show and you are creating a mystery for mystery's sake mm-hmm. and it doesn't drive anything, mm-hmm. then that is sloppy writing. Yeah, his, his example of Justified is a great one because it, it's in any, especially in a show like that where it's like, chances are if a big villain is introduced, they're not going to survive well, right. the season one way or another. Right. And, and so then, it, the, you know, if a show is well constructed, then it is still interesting to see how they're going yes. to get from point A to point B. But I do feel like for a show that's really engrossing like Justified is, if... It takes, at least for me, I sort of, if I step back from it and I sort of look at the long view and then I can sort of like intellectualize and it's like, of course, Neil McDonough's character is going to probably die by the end of the season. Yeah. But there's an element of if a show's but how? Good, you well, <laughs> you get lost and you sort of get lost in the show and yeah. you're not really thinking of that. Yes. And to sort of have something like that's a concrete spoiler, mm-hmm. that's tougher to like push away from your brain, I think sometimes. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm even thinking like if I had known how Breaking Bad was going to end this season. Yeah. It still would have been interesting to watch. Yeah. Be- totally. To see how you get to that. Totally. To that point. Yeah. So, and you can have the cake and eat it too in some of these situations. Like you sure, can have, yeah. you can enjoy a splashy moment. Yeah not knowing it, but yeah. also acknowledge that it wouldn't have ruined yeah. the show for you. Yeah, I think for me, it's like... <laughs> it's, not, I would, it's not black yeah. or white. Not mm-hmm. being spoiled by something is probably my ideal state, but it's yeah. like there are levels of enjoyment that you can like... All is not lost if you get spoiled, you know? And let's face it, living a living a uh, spoiler-resistant lifestyle is very tough. <laughs> well, and it's on you. Embrace, it, it is, and you can't blame anybody Embracing else. the random dungeon encounter spoiler, yeah. to use some D&D parlance, <laughs> is probably the sane way to consume pop culture. And he's yeah. right. Like, we've all been in that position where you're like, just tell me what happens, because yeah. I want to decide if I want to see it or not. Yeah. Right. So right. it, it, it is a good way to live. All right. Good job, Noah. I am not a crackpot. Hi, Extra Hot Great. This is Kat Angus from Toronto. And I am not a crackpot, but I think television characters should be better at lying. <laughs> Whenever anybody on television is even the slightest bit untruthful, they give the most unconvincing performance ever. Like, they get the shifty eyes and they stretch out their speech in this exaggerated manner like, Oh, sure, it would be great if your parents came to stay with us. And it's obvious to anybody with half a brain that this person is clearly lying. But I realize this is done just to make it obvious to the viewing audience that the character is lying. But surely this could be done in a way that doesn't make all the people around this character seem mentally deficient for not noticing that this person is clearly lying to them. So for that matter, I am not a crackpot, but I think television characters should be better at noticing when people are lying to them, because nobody's trying very hard to hide it, but nobody even thinks of the possibility that anyone might not tell them the truth. I mean, geez, guys, it's a pretty standard storyline. All right, thanks, Extra Hot Great. Love the podcast. She's right, and it's not only sitcoms either. 
Like it's it happens on dramas too, where people are just super duper shifty for yeah. no good reason. There's a lot of people in Hollywood and a lot of writers that employ the yeah, and yeah. for good reason because yeah. they're bad at lying. Yes, and that is the character of that trait. Yes, maybe and it's they- better to make the rest of us feel better for when we are good at lying that we can be like, <laughs> I'm such a better liar. than I this guess, person but is. it it feels weak to me that no, like they, they sometimes like they'll it'll be a plot point where someone will have to tell a lie for you know a good reason and then it becomes like, but you're terrible at lying. Like no, everybody is terrible at lying on yeah. TV and in the movies. Yeah, with the exceptions of shows like Alias, where it's actually important for yes. people to be good at lying and be convincing, and for yeah. us to know that they are. They might be lying all the time, right. but she's right. That's that, and it, that would be more satisfying too to the viewer. Where it's like, wouldn't it be nice if we were all surprised yeah. when a lie is exposed, as opposed to it being completely telegraphed for plot reasons? Yeah, good one, cat. I am not a crackpot. I am not a crackpot. <gasps> but Boba Fett is a moderately successful but vastly overrated <laughs> bounty hunter who just happens to look cool. Nerd gasp. <laughs> His one smart move in the whole series was anticipating Han Solo's play to float away with the garbage just before the Imperial fleet goes into hyperspace. That was a good play. So he's a good tracker. Yep. We know that much. But then he doesn't hit thing one throughout the whole series with a laser. (laughs) He's like a stormtrooper that way. I mean, he sort of is a stormtrooper. But so he's got that going for him. Stormtrooper aim. (laughs) The one time he does hit a mark, it's with a rope gun. <laughs> Why does he have a rope gun? That is it's not name. to get from place to place because that guy's got a jetpack, which is the coolest thing about Boba Fett. He's got mm-hmm. the jetpack. Two coolest things about Boba Fett. One jetpack, two T-bone mask. He's yeah. got the T-bone yeah. right on his face. <laughs> uh, and then if you're going to, sh- first of all, if you have a rope gun, okay. If you're going to shoot somebody <laughs> with a rope gun, not the guy with the laser sword <laughs> who can cut through the rope really easily. Also, let's talk about Boba Fett's lack of situational awareness. He's got his eyes on the prize with Luke Skywalker on the skiff in Return of the Jedi so much that he doesn't notice a half-blind Han Solo flailing around with a stick that activates this jetpack that throws him into the Sarlacc pit, dooming him for a thousand years of digestion. Mm-hmm. Come on. And is that a world-class bounty hunter? No. Han Solo is at that time saying Boba Fett like 18 yeah. different times. It should get his attention. <laughs> You're right. What a great point. He's like it's like playing hide and seek, you know? Maybe the mask is is affecting all the all the oxen-free Boba Fett. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a crackpot. I am not a crackpot. I just think that Katherine Heigl gets a bad rap. Hear me out. Back when Grey's Anatomy first started and became a hit, people loved Katherine Heigl. I just knew her as the cool alien chick from Roswell. Folks couldn't get enough of her. She used that to cross over to films. Then the backlash started with people getting their underpants twisted over some comments that she made about both Grey's Anatomy and Knocked Up. Guess what, guys? She was kind of right on both accounts. The writing during that horrible Izzy George season on Grey's Anatomy was bad. The fact that Heigl voiced her feelings that she didn't think she deserved to be considered for an Emmy nomination because the writing was crap was brave and kind of admirable. And hey, Judd Apatow, knocked up is sort of misogynistic. What was wrong with Kyle saying that? 
These days, she seems really grounded and genuinely apologetic and clear-minded about what happened with her comments and how she was perceived. I think Katherine Heigl is a pretty good actor. Kind of the next generation Julia Roberts. I think she's gorgeous and funny, and she's married to Josh Kelly, who I adore, so it's sort of hard for me to hate her. She's even charming in horrible movies like Killers and Life as We Know It. And for what it's worth, I think one for the money looks great. Okay, okay, I'll quit while I'm ahead. Thanks for consideration. Have a great day. Uh, thanks. That is our second cat of our submissions. Oh, wow. That's from Cat H, um, fan club president for Catherine Heigl, uh, North America edition. Can I give Cat one tip? Yeah. Uh, if you're a really, really big fan of somebody's husband, you're not supposed to like the person who they're married to. You're supposed <laughs> to irrationally hate them. Also, wait and then a minute. hope that they get divorced so that you can pr- pr- preserve your hope that one day you could be with Josh Kelly. <laughs> that is, is the internet way. This is Cat H? Yeah. Are we sure this is not Catherine Heigl <laughs> submitting in her uh, own defense? Uh-huh. Here's the thing. The only reason I've never submitted this very case as a crackpot <laughs> theory is because I I think I've bored everybody I know with my whole thing about how Catherine Heigl is too hated in the culture. Uh-huh. I feel like... She's certainly more hated than her impact suggests. She's more hated than her impact she suggests. She deserves. And it's also she's more hated than the actual things that she said deserves in terms of... The fact that, like, the backlash against her started because she was vocal about the Isaiah Washington thing and ended up getting him fired, and that was where it started, was with people who were fans of the show and who were fans of Isaiah Washington basically Mm. calling her a bitch for getting him fired, and I think that's where Shonda Rhimes started to hate her, and I think that's when Shonda Rhimes wrote her into, this is really crackpot material, but I think Shonda Rhimes wrote that character into a horrible, horrible corner because she essentially resented Catherine Heigl for getting Isaiah Washington fired. Mm-hmm. That's my weird theory. I also think, I mean, the movies get tough to defend. I wouldn't go for the next Julia Roberts route, and I wouldn't go for the... Well, she's uh, the next Julia Roberts route in the sense that she seems to regard herself very highly and be very annoying. Okay, but... <laughs> I'm not a Julia know. Roberts I like, fan. Oh, well, that's for some reason I never knew that. That's interesting. I, don't know. I hate Julia Roberts like everyone else hates Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh yeah. Okay. That's that's how that's I a good feel analogy. About her. Okay. Yeah. No, I like. I generally tend to like an outspoken celebrity versus a sort of saying the right things, boring celebrity. Mm-hmm. So, and I never thought that what she said about like knocked up was a all that scandalous, and b like Kat says, like kind of correct. Like mm-hmm. it's not like she was off the mark about the merits well. of parts of knocked up, and. I don't know. I mean, I, it's it's easy to bring it to the if she was a man, would she be getting this kind of flack for it place? But I do feel like there's an element of pretty girl should shut up. That That's to a lot of this reaction to her. I think there's a way that you can get, a, if you're an actor, that you can get away with shitting on stuff that you've done. Mm-hmm. Where it's still sort of, you stay ch- kind of charming about it. And I yeah. don't think that she quite has the ear to do that. Well, the so trick I think is a lot to- of what she says just makes it seem like, well, if you thought Knocked Up was so bad, no one made you make it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's a way, but every, you have to every include actor yourself has in done the blame. that. Right. And every yeah. actor has said, like, you know, even my own beloved Gwyneth Paltrow. So, Kat, I hear you <laughs> about liking someone yeah. everyone else hates. Because, like I said, yeah. I'm a fan of Gwyneth. You are a fan of Gwyneth. So, I, I get it. And I get I will, where you're coming from. And I will stick up for 27 Dresses. I think that's a charming and fun movie. It is cute. But, yeah. the, but that's the other thing, too, where it's like, you know, you don't get to shit on Knocked Up and then turn around and make, um, 
Oh, that one with Gerard Butler. No, I, I know what you remember. mean, and I can't You know what I mean? The awful truth. The awful truth. The ugly truth. Yes. The ugly truth. Yeah. Like, it's not like you're using your fame to get monster made. You know that what I mean? <laughs> like, that you don't get true. to shit on one rom-com and then make 27 other rom-coms that are just right. as bad or worse. Right. You know, I mean, we don't a baby know the pooped offer- right yeah. in your face. Yeah. So yeah, we don't know what she's getting offered, but you have to think that there's got to be something better than what she's been making. Yes. Yeah. But, right. I, but I hear where you're coming from, Cat Age. Yeah. Turnaround is fair play yes. from defending the ladies <laughs> to this one from Sean. I am not a crackpot. Hey, Extra Hot Great Crew. This is Sean from New York. Uh, I've been sitting on this one for a while, and I think it's time I just came out and said it. I am not a crackpot. I just think that Channing Tatum is a conniving bastard who has convinced the women of America he can act and needs to be stopped. Not all of them. Let me take you through a list of the crap that Channing Tatum has made you accept over the years. He got started on CSI Miami, as all of our finest actors do, before quickly making his way to Coach Carter, which, let's be honest, folks, is kind of a bad movie. He followed it up with Supercross. Oh, do you not remember Supercross? It's the fucking motocross movie with the dude from the Reba sitcom sporting a soul patch. Uh, Sub-crackpot theory, if the star of your movie has a soul patch, your movie's not good. But for a few years, I thought I was free of the terror of Channing Tatum. He popped up in the back of War of the Worlds in that movie where Anne Hathaway shows her tits. But no biggie. The most acting he actually got to do was to be the love interest of Amanda Bynes. And then Step Up happened. And it was over. After he showed the women of America his sensitive, hip-shaking side, he threw himself in a couple of action movies and Step Up 2 to make us believe he was some kind of big, hunky action movie star. Although, it's actually kind of great because it gave us a movie just called Fighting. (laughs) And then one small role in Public Enemies and bam, Channing Tatum's supposed to be a serious actor? You do know he was a G.I. Joe, right? But now he can cuddle up with Amanda Seyfried and cry about how war's not fair or get homoerotic with a British slave boy, Jamie Bell, and we're supposed to take him seriously? Wait a minute. For a while, <laughs> Back I thought on these board. movies were ruining Channing Tatum's career, but somehow he stayed cemented in place as a go-to movie actor, despite not being good in any movie he's ever been in, ever. Look, ladies, I know you love him because he's got muscles in places we shouldn't have muscles and he'll dance your way to happiness or whatever, But when the highest rated movie on his Rotten Tomatoes profile, Mongol, isn't actually a movie he was in, you can't help but wonder if that dopey rock-like face is hiding an evil mastermind. Uh, Love you guys. Thanks for the show. Uh, I am not a crackpot, but Sean is history's greatest monster. (laughs) (laughs) Sean doesn't get it. Let's say that. Sean doesn't get it. Yeah, I think Sean is maybe a little misguided in directing his rant against ladies, if you know what I'm saying. Because he does not do it for me and he never has. Step Up is the worst movie in the Step Up franchise. There I said it. I am not a a crackpot. No, you're absolutely correct. But let's be real. Being the worst movie in the Step Up franchise ain't that bad. Like, that's still pretty good. Okay, but still. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's not like I'm it's a say, piece of shit, though. It's still step mm, up. Well, it's still step up. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, it has the least hip-hop dancing of all the step-up movies. Watch Tara just take a bloody axe to the back of the step-up franchise. And the other two <laughs> male leads in the next two movies are not charismatic either. Like, they're all, no. they're all kind of like a big slabs there. of meat. Yeah. I, t- I totally hear everything he's saying. And his neck is too wide for his head. Like he's weird. He's weird looking. I, he's not cute. He wasn't funny on SNL. Oh, just and wrong. I don't. Um, he's not for me. But I don't think he's making these movies for me. 
if you know what I'm saying. Hey, I don't. And Explain. Joe does. And I do. I'm picking up what you're putting down. That's all I'm saying. That's right. I am not a crackpot. Okay, I am not a crackpot, ladies and gentlemen, but the Real World Road Rules Challenge is a triumph of long-form narrative storytelling on television. Explain. I will explain. So, clearly, the appeal for something as guilty pleasury as Real World Road Rules Challenge is basically that you're going to watch drunken, arrested adolescents fall down for our enjoyment and amusement. But, after 22, let's step back and realize, 22 seasons... Of the real world road rules of the challenge. challenge of the challenge just of the challenge. How many seasons of the real world have there been? G- uh, like thirty? It's mid twenties, I think. With the Jesus. real world, too. yeah, wow. it's amazing. Okay, go um, on. Sorry. Anyway, no, that's okay. I feel like that's a thing that needs to be sort of it, taken yes. in a gasp. Yeah. So I feel like I the secret reason why this show is great to me, and I feel like if you talk to people who enjoy the show, they'll realize that there's an undercurrent of this where it's momentum builds up from season to season to season and then you get something like these last couple seasons where the last one was rivals where they paired up two and two historical enemies and they were teammates and this season they're exes so like old exes from like uh old seasons are paired up and which is so crazy to me that they have enough people that have they have way up more with each other yes that they can have a whole season of people that oh yeah dated in well, air quotes and they're, and yeah and their dated is very very loosely defined as sure. like they made out one time on a show but right. like it counts right so but i feel like we all know the sort of phenomenon with reality show all-star seasons where those are the best most fun seasons because we already know who these people are and you're sort of starting from a place where you know what the deal is and every season of the challenge is an all-star season because every season of the challenge is just reforming this uh pool of contestants into however you want it to and you end up with things like Sort of these this entrenched ruling class of uh, your Johnny Bananas's, sure. your CTs, yep. your your Kennys or whatever, and they're always sort of the alpha dogs. And you could go three seasons before you see them get their comeuppance, but once they do, it's so much more satisfying because they've been like <laughs> ruling this game for so long. This past week, this was actually a really fortuitous uh, time to do the Crackpot episode. It'll be two weeks after this uh, episode airs, but mm-hmm. uh, there was an episode of the challenge where. Where, again, on its face, it's the dumbest, most MTVist, ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> where one of the women, in order to, on a drunken, like, 2 a.m. thing, to make fun of her partner, decided that she was going to smear chocolate sauce on her face. It was and Nutella. It was Nutella. Okay, to be fair, it was Nutella. <laughs> um, essentially going in blackface to make fun of her African-American partner. And it got bad. (laughs) Oh, Emily. And it was so, and it was the most horrifying thing. And if you're just sort of like watching it on a drive-by, you could just be like, fucking MTV with this bottom of the barrel (laughs) bullshit. But if you've actually been watching all these seasons, there is a deeper understanding of Emily is historically one of the like, most normal and like coolest people and then you realize like oh right she was raised in a cult that was her whole backstory when she was on the real world and she was like yeah so she was like whatever and I mean not that it's an excuse for going in blackface but there is like more to the story and that (laughs) but there are mitigating circumstances is what you're saying and that and then you look at the fact that like she had uh, historically been such a good like you know one of the good ones (laughs) and then her partner Ty had always been such a badly behaved person and that this season he had pulled it together so there was this weird kind of like pathos where it was just sad all around. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, 
in a weird way, I was like, I'm really glad that I put in all the effort to watch all these seasons of both The Challenge and The Real World that I'm getting the most I can get out of a woman drunk at 2 a.m. in blackface making fun of her friend. So I'm not going to say this isn't Shakespeare, this isn't whatever. <laughs> Shocker, I'm not a crackpot. The Real World Road Rules Challenge isn't Shakespeare. Shut it down. But I'm just going to say, especially this past few seasons, they've really, really begun to... Uh, show the benefits of sticking with a recurring cast of drunken idiots. I am not a crackpot! Hi, Extra Hot Great. I am not a crackpot, but it drives me crazy when you have a scene in a movie or a TV show or whatever, and someone snaps a photograph. Then you have a later scene, and you get a view of the earlier snapped photo, and it's so obvious the picture wasn't taken from that scene. So, for example, you you have the poses which are off, or you have the, the smiles on the, the people's faces that's different from, you know, that earlier scene, and even the placement of the people could be off in the, in the picture. So, it's it's not like the biggest offense in the world, but it really, really drives me crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, I noticed that, and it, it's annoying. Anyway, I am not a crackpot. I, for, my, I don't forgive, but I think that... TV and movie makers in the internet age really should be hyper aware of continuity and things like this. this they should be sweating the small details like this. Yes. I think I mentioned on the podcast, I mentioned on the podcast, I think about security camera footage. Was that on air? No. Yeah. We were watching The Running Man a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's similar to the photo thing uh, brought up here, which is often there'll be a scene in which a security camera captures a scene. Oh, yeah. And it just what they do is they just rerun the scene as it was filmed by the cameras originally. So, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is fighting in a helicopter. He's shooting missiles out of the gun. And the security camera footage is amazing. It's exactly the same. Multiple camera. Somehow the security camera is outside the helicopter showing the rockets fire from the security camera. In the defense of the running man, it is the future. It is the future. (laughs) But take 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 the time to figure out where your camera is sitting in this world and then just shoot an extra quick scene. In today's world, you can probably just do that with a nice sub $1,000 high-definition camcorder and mm-hmm. get the same results. Yep. Attention to detail. Sweat them. She's right. Absolutely. I am not a crackpot. I love Parks and Recreation. In fact, I love it so much that I am not a crackpot, but I think the third season is worthy of being in the pantheon of great television seasons, maybe equal to or exceeding the second season of Arrested Development which is my uh, benchmark for th- the greatest season of comedy. Because even though the comedy is awesome as an arrest development, which nobody, of course, is disputing, we never actually cared about the success or failure of any character in that series, except for Michael and George Michael. Uh, Parks and Recreation makes us want even the douchey characters, like Tom, to achieve their goals, as well as creating great ensemble comedy and characters that change and grow, as they would in a dramatic series. If the fourth season continues the trend that Parks and Rec has of being better than every previous season, we may be crowning a new best sitcom ever this time next year. Uh, thank you, Peter. Peter obviously sent this a while ago. <laughs> uh, this is from probably about five months ago or so. Uh-huh. Okay, Proceed. Uh, well, I don't agree about Tom. No, I don't Especially care. Especially now that Tom they've hooked the him up with of... Anne, which is even more uh, making it obvious they don't know what to do with either of with those either characters. With either one of them, yeah. This season has not been as good as this season, season being the fourth season. Yes, not we're the not, third we're season about he's season talking four. about. Yes, um, but um, 
But other than that, I, I agree. He's other than the Tom thing. Season three of Parks and Recreation is extremely strong. I think I like season two of Parks and Recreation even better, but it's like it's by small degrees and mm. it's uh, they're both very, very good. And I will say, going back to the rest of development, I really did care that the movies that maybe was producing at her movie studio <laughs> succeeded. So I want to be on the record for that. I am not a crackpot. Hey, Extra Hot Great. This is Steve Green from Los Angeles, and I am not a crackpot for thinking that movies and TV shows should permanently abolish the fake 555 phone number. Nothing takes me out of a great scene more than blatantly fictionalized contact info, whether it's for a flower shop, a hitman, or the high school best friend (laughs) that has to be flashed on screen, or even worse, when it has to be said aloud. To me, using a 555 number has always seemed a little lazy. Either find a way not to have to show it, or obscure enough numbers so that drunk people can't dial it without trying a ridiculous amount of combinations. Now, I see two possible fixes for this problem. First, have a dedicated number for individual movies or shows, or books if you absolutely have to. Apparently, the non-555 number that Scrubs used in a few episodes actually connected to a phone on set that various cast members would occasionally answer themselves. Now, even if that story was apocryphal, it makes me think that this could be amazing in the right hands. Imagine if you called the number for ICE's headquarters and it sent you to the Archer Recording Studio. Even if it was just an intern answering the phone all day, at least you'd have a live body to pitch your The Tunt spinoff to. <laughs> the worst case scenario is that the novelty wears off after a few days, people get tired of it, and all calls to that number get sent to voicemail. Second solution? Have a universal number like 7429 something 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 that everyone can use. It'd be less obvious, it could be an in-joke for pop culture buffs, and you could even connect to something useful like a charity. Everybody wins. The least the studios could do is save 100 bucks on craft services and open up a phone line or two. Thanks, everyone. Uh, thank you, Steve. I think this is Jeopardy, Steve Green. So oh. I'm going to give uh, extra thumbs up because you know how much I love Jeopardy. Who is Steve? Ah. <laughs> Steve, I was going to say you have a great radio voice. A lot yeah, of people really on this one have a great... Uh, our first one, Mark, yeah. was really great, too. Yeah, this sort of goes to the uh, sort of movie ephemera that he's absolutely the re- absolutely right that it takes you out of the movie whenever because it's become such a thing. Yeah. It's sort of like whenever I will hear a uh, Wilhelm scream yeah. in a movie, and it's like, it's such a great thing, but it's become such a cliche. It was the inside joke that became the everybody knows joke, yeah. and now, like, it was a great thing when it was just the engineers and their, yes. you know, with their glasses and their pit stains and everything (laughs) inserting it in there but now that everybody who is a fan of pop culture knows about it you kind of can't use it now it's over right right or or my, bring it back twenty. My years suggestion: from now. just replace it with a goofy holler, which is funny. Our, our friend Stephen Falk, who's been on the show, yes. is yeah. a writer on Weeds. Yes, and he had a script where somebody had to give a. I yes. forget if it was someone had to dictate a phone number or someone received a call. Yeah, but a number had to appear in one yes. way or another, and he he has talked about how he tried so many ways to write around it. Yeah. He went. He, like his he, wrote, he wrote a real. He he came up with a real number and registered it as a Google Voice number and mm-hmm. was like, "I'll just use this. Like, it doesn't have to even go anywhere." And it was not. He was not allowed. Well, to. the ra- he said the rationale was, "Well, you own it now, but you may right. not own it in the future." And then right. whoever, whoever you know, does own that number in twenty years, who's yeah, going to try and call it when that crazy weeds fan starts <laughs> starts recording every number from the episode and just can't stop dialing it. Then some guy in Georgia sues, uh, you know, Lionsgate. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. it's you know because uh, if, like, if nothing nice else, things. Hollywood runs on contracts, right? Yeah. And true. legal forms, and they and, um, and they all have uh, in in perpetuity in all known universes, which I also love. Yes. But but I've seen um, scenes where 
both of Steve's solutions are great. The, a third that I've seen is where a scene will um, will sort of trail off in the middle of somebody dictating uh, the number. Yeah. Or you pick up the phone and like hat your thumb, you know, yep. whatever. Yeah. There are there are ways, and he's right. It does. It is. It immediately snaps you out of. It, and this was this was our friend Steven's issue as well. Yeah. No. And he's right. It does. He's totally right. You are not a crackpot. Hey, speaking about telephones, I am not a crackpot. This is Corey H, and I am not a crackpot. But it drives me crazy that people in movies and on TV never say goodbye when hanging up the phone has no writer or actor ever stopped to think that this is not how real people act it never fails they just finish a sentence and click i always picture the person on the other end saying hello 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 (laughs) goodbye thank you no that's a really good one it's again goes to the idea that certain things that happen on television are just sort of they people behave in ways that just people don't behave. And I guess it's maybe an economy of dialogue kind of thing where it's just like... You don't want to watch people wrapping up a conversation. Cause exactly. Because that's boring. Right, exactly. Um, but I think in, just in terms of we're trying to watch things that try and mirror the way we live. And When I was a child, this would be about five or six, I remember I was over my sort of friend across the street, David Baldarelli, and his older sister, who was probably about 12 at the time, was talking on the phone and hung up without saying goodbye. And I was so perplexed and scandalized that I remember going home and going to my mom at the kitchen table. I was at David Baldarelli's house and his sister, I just got the phone and say goodbye to the person. And I was like, it was, it was outside the bounds of reason that that should actually happen. I was so stunned by it. Like she slammed down the phone in no, anger? She just, just was like done a movie. and was like, Just like a movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. And- yeah. Uh-huh. Click. Caveat to that is the people who answer the phone in like cute little ways where they'll just be like, talk to me or something like that. And it's there's yeah. people do that more in real life now, though, Ugh, and they shouldn't. They shouldn't. But uh, yeah, you are uh, not a crackpot. Uh-uh. I am not a crackpot. I, Tara Ariano, am not a crackpot. I just don't think Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles. <gasps> Listen, guys, first of all, leaving aside the whole issue of whether somebody's dumb wife could break up a band, (laughs) which is a sexist principle to begin with and one that I don't agree with. The theory about Yoko is everybody points to Revolution 9 and no one is going to sit here and act like that's a good track because it's not. Number eight. Number eight. (laughs) Right. Number eight. Going around asking for a single plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat. Yes. I know. I get it. We've all heard the stories. But that album also included a lot of really great songs by John Lennon, including Dear Prudence and many others. Um, and that was not the sum total of what he produced when they were a partnership. He, I, I, I do think that she pushed him in interesting artistic directions. Not all of them worked, but a lot of them did. Right. And even the album that they were working on when he was killed was, you know, his songs at least were really good. The issue is no one ever points a finger at Linda Eastman. That bitch. (laughs) And that's just not to say that she's the dumb wife either. But when all this shit was going down and the Beatles were starting to each separately think about, other than Ringo, think about other projects (laughs) that they might want to do on their own, this is also around the time that they had had, um, set up Apple Corps. And just as a sidebar, the reason that I know all this stuff or have formed these theories is that when I was a in high school, I worked at the public library <laughs> and I went through a series of obsessions and would read every book that the library had about a given topic. And I jumped from JFK to the Beatles <laughs> to Monty Python to the Monkees and onward. Then I got another job. <laughs> Going back to Apple That is Core. also not to say that your Beatles <laughs> obsession ended in high school because no. I seem to recall dating a lovely young lady yes. and her bedroom wall 
in your early 20s being festooned yeah. with some Beatles magazine rippings still? Yeah. I yeah. feel like everybody goes through a Beatles phase. Sure. In fact, they weren't even magazine rippings because I worked. I got them from were the library. Were they poster pullouts? No, oh. they were photocopies of <laughs> magazines because that's how much of a goddamn nerd I was. And I got them out of the stacks in the library where I worked. <laughs> Moving on. So the issue is not to get too wonky about it, but Linda Eastman wanted her dad to manage the, the group. And this actually ended up being the schism that in my opinion, broke yeah. up the band for business reasons, not creative ones. She's the shitty one. And by the way, if you compare anything that Wings did to Jealous Guy, I feel like you will see <laughs> whose wife was actually the crappiest. And why doesn't history blame Linda more? Linda, you are rotting in hell now. <laughs> wow. No, I don't actually think that. I can't she, even any- she was a nice vegetarian. Well, and I feel like we can all look at the Beatles and just you know, intellectualize it that, wow, Paul and John were really, really different people, both artistically and temperamentally. Mm -hmm. It's not a really big leap to wonder why the band ended up going their separate ways. Well, no, that's the thing, too. Like, they were probably not going to stay together forever. Right, right. For for any number of reasons. But if you have to point the finger at any one single person, which is ridiculous, but if you did... Yes. Point that finger at Linda. Get her. I am not (laughs) a crackpot. Dear Extra Hot, great. I'm not a crackpot, but I believe that right now we need more sitcoms with laugh tracks. I realized this while watching the Thanksgiving episode of New Girl. Now, this is a show which often seems to have been written to have a laugh track, but at some step along the way decided not to have one. Even though it's not a faux documentary, it contains no improv, and it's essentially a traditional sitcom about mismatched roommates. But it thinks it's doing the comedy of awkwardness, so you have these standard sitcom jokes with setup and punchline punctuated by awkward pauses. For example, Zoe Deschanel's on one side of a door, talking about how she wants to do it with this guy, and OMG, he's on the other side of the door, and we expect to hear the studio audience getting louder and louder as he looks more and more embarrassed, and so on. But on this show, she blathers away, he looks embarrassed, and then she opens the door, and someone says, You know, we could hear you. And she stands there looking miserable. That's it. And this is because nowadays a show cannot have a laugh track if it has any pretense of being more than lowest common denominator. There's one exception, and that is How I Met Your Mother. It was barely a decade ago that Sports Night was almost ruined by its mandatory laugh track, and now we've gone so far the other way that there are shows that seem weird because they don't have laugh tracks. I see so many online diatribes from people saying, I'd like to watch this show, but I can't get past the laugh track. Why are they telling me when to laugh? They think we're a bunch of idiots out here. Guess what? 30 Rock and Raising Hope also tell you when to laugh. They just do it with reaction shots and music cues. So I don't think you're so smart. So I'm afraid we're raising a generation of kids who think laugh track equals dumb or associate laugh tracks with what they used to watch on the Disney Channel. And these kids will be unable to appreciate Seinfeld, Cheers, Friends, Blossom, The Golden Girls, what have you, because they reject the entire format. This is my concern. Thank you. <laughs> I am not a crackpot. <laughs> what? Oh, well, I was just going to say, there, I, I feel like a distinction should be drawn between shows that have an obvious laugh track and shows that are filmed before a live audience. Because yeah. a lot of the ones that he mentioned were not, those aren't laugh tracks. They were probably sweetened. Yeah. Right. But Seinfeld really did, and Friends really did. I hate that did. term, sweetened. It's so. Okay, but you know what I mean. No, they it's were, a good term. They, they were goosed, whatever. No, it's a good term, but it's just like, it's so. It's too right of a okay, term. You know what I mean? <laughs> and my side theory to that is if there if you have a show where you film anything where you're seen as a is an exterior, a true exterior and not yeah. a studio exterior, yes. you're not allowed to do a laugh track because that's just mm. weird. Where is where is where is it coming from, you guys? <laughs> I ask you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not 100% on board, but thanks for this opinion. Thank you. 
I am not a crackpot. I am not a crackpot, but I am not looking forward to Peter Jackson's pair of Hobbit films. <laughs> I understand this won't be a controversial position on Extra Hot Grade. The unabashed <laughs> denigrators of all things popular, but try and... Hey. hey. <laughs> Joe likes those movies. He's got you guys dead to rights. No, I'm just, hey, what. you've been reading my... <laughs> My new slogan blog, that's all. Imagine this from my perspective. I love me some Lord of the Rings, and so do my friends. But when that lame-ass dwarf singing Hobbit trailer appeared on iTunes to triumphantly portend the arrival of not one, but two more gorgeous and epic films about walking, and I witnessed two of my Facebook friends who don't know each other post it within minutes of each other, both using the term nerdgasm to describe it, I started to question not only my love for the Rings trilogy, but also my status as a nerd. I read The Hobbit when I was 12, like everyone else. And as a children's book, it might be enough to sustain a single small-budget film. But the epics we're having crammed down our throats with this trailer? Sorry, but I just don't buy it. Not unless they've thrown out or deviated significantly from the source material. The best Tolkien work has already been put to screen, and Peter Jackson's last film, The Lovely Bones, was one of the most baffling and terrible films of 2009. <laughs> I am not a crackpot, but I am not excited about The Hobbit. All eyes Thanks to Joe. Thanks for the great work. Yeah, as our designated person who loved The Lord of the Rings, and I did quite a bit... I, I agree. I for, And I was not uh, intellectually opposed to the idea of doing a Hobbit movie, but when that trailer came out, I was severely underwhelmed in a way that confused me a little bit. Um, <laughs> it, the, like that one time in gym class? Yeah, <laughs> slightly different than that time, <laughs> okay. but no less confused. Um, he's right about the Lovely Bones. Um, also, he didn't mention that King Kong was a more epic movie that also uh, was a disappointment. <laughs> and I I mean the cash grab nature of it is fairly obvious and the fact that it would be easier to forgive that if it seemed like something that uh, was going to sweep you away but it did feel like sort of a lesser retread of something that was already it successful has, it has been a long time since I have uh, absorbed The Hobbit I think I read it probably when I was like you know whatever 10-ish or something like that yeah. I don't remember it being that long of a story that it needed to be yeah. four hours of a movie. Yeah. No, it's, it's it seems too, a little. Well, yeah. I don't know that Breaking Dawn needs to be four hours of a right. movie either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, I resent the description of us as being haters uh, of all things popular when we've talked about friends on the actually, show. Actually. In this episode, we've it's already come up. Here's how I, but okay, to, to address that point. I and just I don't know, like fantasy. That's my well, thing. I was going to say, it's not popular, it's fantasy. You guys hate fantasy. But for just, me, well, you know how I, I approach pop culture, which is, is something I enjoy and will watch is good and everything else is shit, <laughs> right? Like, I, there's no, like, it's like Quinn when it comes to a lot, especially television. There yeah. is really no middle ground with me. And so yeah. it's like mm-hmm. stuff I really like no, they, he's, they, he means because we don't, I know we don't like the Lord of the Rings movies and we don't like community. And yeah. even even I can appreciate what community is doing. I know he said it in jest. I just I know he to... did too. Also, how popular can Stuart. community be when it's being watched by 57 people? But he, but in nerd in nerd I know. Terms. Oh, I know. I know. I am not a crackpot. <laughs> I am not a crackpot. I just think the main character of a movie or TV show should always be first build. This argument started when myself and someone else were talking about who is the real main character of the BBC series Torchwood. Is it Jack or Gwen? Some people could say that although he's a more interesting character and he's first billed in the credits, John Barrowman's character of Jack Harkness is the main character of Torchwood. But I think Eve Miles' character, Gwen Cooper, is the character to which the audience most relates. She has the most screen time and her presence and experiences are the real driving forces of the series. 
So because of this, Eve Miles should actually be placed first in the credits, not John Barrowman. The quote-unquote order of importance should be based on their importance in the show or movie itself and not based purely on name recognition or pay scale for, for these actors. This almost opens a whole nother argument about who the real main character is in several properties. So in almost making this a double crackpot theory, I'm also going to assert that, that Nick is the real main character of The Great Gatsby, Sam is the real main character of The Lord of the Rings, and Watson is the real main character of Sherlock Holmes. For the same reasons, I described that Gwen is the main character on Torchwood. Uh, I would even say that uh, Forrest Whitaker should have actually been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for, uh, in The Last King of Scotland, uh, because James McAvoy is the real lead actor in that movie, and, and for some reason he was had all this lead actor role, despite the fact that he had virtually no screen time. Uh, same with Anthony Hopkins, I guess, for Silence of the Lambs, but... Uh, Anyway, thanks. <laughs> love the show. I really, really love this submission because this gets to the heart of I Am Not a Crackpot, where it's just, <laughs> it's, and I love, and I love you for it, but it is so completely like diving down the wormhole into nerdery, where it's just You can like, hear it happening in his yeah. eyes, where it's like, and now that I've opened this can of worms. And, <laughs> and I will say, I, and this is not and I'm being, that, no, and I think it's great. Love. And I, it's I, not I, me I'm, being above absolutely. anything, because here's what I will tell you, on my blog, if you look into the archives, when I did my nerdliest of nerdy movie awards for 2006, who was my best supporting actor of 2006? Forrest Whitaker for The Last nice. Game of Scotland. Nice. So, my God, right you and track, this guy are soulmates. We kind of are. You know who provided a solution to this problem not so long ago? Me. Yeah. If a movie was named after the character, yeah. or vice versa, <laughs> yeah. it would be this trouble. If the lead uh, character in Torchwood was... Called Torchwood. Torchwood. Johnny Torchwood. Yeah. <laughs> you know who would be the lead actor? The guy who played Johnny Torchwood. Yeah. Right? This is... Although he says in The Great Gatsby that The Great Gatsby shouldn't be the lead, so you're kind of at mm. odds with him right now. Dave doesn't know about The Great Gatsby. Yeah. <laughs> but remember when Gatsby blowed up that building? That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> remember when Die Hard's wife got kidnapped? <laughs> All right, guys. I have a question for you, and that is this. Do you know what time it is? It is game time. It is game time. audio cues <laughs> all right uh this is the 11th game time of the season our standings are currently tara with six joe with four putting joe in the position that he needs to win the next and last two game times of the season to force the tiebreaker yes. so yes. joe is under pressure today picking up where we just left off with our last crackpot we are playing no small parts from Will H. All right. I am going to give you... Oh, this is the one that was teased on Twitter. Oh, right. Yes, he was talking about this on Twitter. He was indeed. I'm right, going to do your worst. Give you the name <laughs> of a character actor, a.k.a. hates that guy. Sure. Right. Yep. And you tell me what their highest worldwide grossing <gasps> movie was. Oh, no. <laughs> to qualify... Shit. We have qualifications. To qualify, an actor had to have appeared in a movie that grossed more than $100 million worldwide, okay? okay. So we're not talking about some character actor whose highest grossing movie. topped out at $38,000. At $38, <laughs> exactly. That's no help when you're talking about like JFK or The Firm where every actor oh, no. appears in one or both oh, of them. God. Okay, two points for giving me the correct answer right off the bat, yeah. but you have a clue option. Thank God. 
I will give you a clue in the form of the first build actor, okay. right. such as Johnny Torchwood sure. from the movie. <laughs> yes. The correct answer after that clue is worth one point. Okay. We have 36 questions for you. Are you ready to play No Small Part? I don't feel good about this. All right. Picky, what do you got for us? All right. It's Tara today. Here right. we go. Okay. Your character actor, Tara. <sighs> is Regina King, and we want to know what was her highest grossing movie. Jerry Maguire. Correct. Nice. Two, two points? Two points, okay. and that was 274 million bucks. Okay. okay. Joe. Yes. Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne. Okay. Oh, how did those Matrix movies shake out financially? Oh, of course. Oh, God. Oh no! Um, because they all decreased in quality, but that's now never before an you give me your answer, Joe, yeah, remind you of two things. One, you could ask for a clue. Two, <laughs> the movie fled. <laughs> <laughs> all right, the clue is not going to be any of any help. Um, I'm going to say the Matrix Reloaded. $742 million of The Matrix Reloaded. Tara. He whiz. Yes. Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. What was his highest grossing movie? I mean, he's been in everything, so I'm going to need a hint. Leonardo DiCaprio. Catch me if you can. Correct. His highest grossing movie, $352 million bucks. All right, Joe. Yes. Hugo Weaving. All right. I don't want to outsmart myself. <laughs> Matrix Reloaded. Mm. Ah. Lord of the Rings. Oh, something. Shit. Lord of the Rings, Return, Return of the of King, the King. $1.1 Yeah. at the box Damn office. Damn it. Not V for Vendetta is what you're saying. <laughs> Nor Priscilla, Queen of the <laughs> Desert. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to butcher this. Uh, Taraji P. Henson? That's exactly yes. right. Tara. Highest grossing movie. Um, Remember, you got a clue coming. If yeah, you need it. I'll take the clue. Your clue is Jaden Smith. The Karate Kid, the remake. Correct. Holy crap, that made $360 what? million. Dollars. I heard that movie was good for what it was. Won't see it. I haven't seen it either, but I heard it was good. Joseph Reed. Yes. Melissa Leo. Melissa Leo. Okay. <laughs> not 21 grams. Not Frozen River. Um, mm, the fighter made I don't know. some money. Don't count out Frozen River. <laughs> Literally fives of people saw that movie in the theater. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask for a hint. Mark Wahlberg. The fighter. Correct for one point. Right. Tara. Yep. Your character actor is Stanley Tucci. Highest grossing movie for one Mr. Stanley Tucci. Is it Transformers Revenge of the Fallen? Damn it! It is Captain America. Oh, 367. Wow. Captain America made more than Transformers? Uh, apparently. That Captain is surprising America. to me. All right. Joe. Yes. Steven Tobolowski. Oh. oh, golly. He has been in very few films. <laughs> Steven Dave has a disease where he thinks few means many. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask. I have, a, I have a feeling, but I'm going to ask for a hint. All right. Um, Sharon Stone. Oh. Oh. Sharon Stone. Yep. 
Stephen Tobolowski and Sharon Stone starring in this movie made a bunch of money. What is it? Basic Instinct? Really? Correct for one point. Yep, that is correct. Okay, Tara. Yep. Highest grossing worldwide movie for Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. You require a hint there, Tar? Yes, I do. Steve Buscemi starred with Bruce Willis in this high-grossing movie. Bruce Willis. Well, that made a good chunk of change, too. $554 million. With Bruce Willis. Gonna need an answer? Pulp Fiction? Armageddon. Armageddon. Oh, fuck off that movie. <laughs> Joe, Hank Azaria. Okay, Hank Azaria. Can't remember whether Mystery Men bombed or not. Um, I'm going to ask for a hint. Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> That's what I thought. Okay. Which one of those movies? Hank um, Azaria, Neil Patrick oh, no, no, Harris. No, no. Oh, of course, The Smurfs. In The Smurfs. Guess, That's sad. Guess how much? $230 million. $560 million. Wow. America. This is why we can't have nice things. And the world. Oh, this is worldwide. This is okay. worldwide. It's not 3D's fault. <laughs> okay. America made that movie, though. Yeah, that's true. It's America's <laughs> fault. All right, those are 10th questions. So let's go score break. Tara. Four. Joe. Five. All right. Tara. Debbie Mazar. Mazar. Debbie Mazar. Yep. I'm going to hint. Val Kilmer. <laughs> Um, Batman, the third Batman movie. You're going to need a title. Which was Batman Forever. Correct. Correct. Joe. Yes. Tim Blake Nelson. Nelson. Oh, God. Was he in a Transformers movie? Um, I'm going to need a hint. Ben Stiller was his co-star. Top build co-star. Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. With Tim Blake Nelson in... Night at the Museum. Um, Good guess. Meet the Fockers. Oh. $517 million. Jeez. Tara. Yep. Judy Greer. Archer voice talent Judy Greer. Hint. Mel Gibson. What women want. Correct. $374 million. Uh, Melanie Linsky. My girl, Melanie Linsky. Um, Melanie Linsky... You know it's Heavenly Creatures. I don't know why you're saying Everything I'm thinking of is like, Heavenly Creatures, away we go. Shattered glass. <laughs> Moneymakers galore. I'm going to ask for a hint. Reese Witherspoon. Oh, Sweet Home Alabama. Correct. Our uh, lowest grossing one on the scoreboard, I believe. $181 million. Yeah, didn't make anything out of, out of America, I will bet you that. All right, for Tara, our favorite actor who just screams, Dan, 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 Steve Coogan. That's not him. Oh, yes, it is him. I'm stupid. <gasps> Steve Coogan. That's Night at the Museum? Yes. There you go. Nice. All right, two, two points. All right, Joe, Clint Howard. <laughs> okay. This one probably should be easy to, easier to break down, obviously. Was he in every rock? Follow the money. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but he was also in... Uh, the second Austin Powers movie, and that made quite a bit. Um, I'm going to have to ask for a hint. Tom Hanks. Apollo 13? All right. 
All right, here we go. Number Good seventeen. Call, taking the hint. Yeah. That's a tough one. Spread eagle. Missy Pyle. Um. Missy Pyle. Who's Missy Pyle again? She's from Dodgeball, right? She had the unibrow yeah. in Dodgeball. It's not the artist. I have it narrowed down to two. I'll, t- I'll take a hint. Johnny Depp. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Correct. $475 million. I figured so. it was that or Galaxy Quest. I, I would have said I Dodgeball, I wasn't actually. sure. <laughs> Joe, Rip Torn. Rip Torn. Yep. Rip Torn. Rip Torn was also in Dodgeball. Um... I'm going to say dodgeball. Men in Black. Oh, oh right. $590 million. Yes. Patricia Clarkson, that's number 19. No, 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 19. Patricia Clarkson. Well, it's obviously Cairo time. Just kidding. That's not my real answer. That's not my real answer. Don't take that answer. You um, meant of April. I have a guess, but I'm not convinced that it's right, so, so you, I'll take the hint. Leonardo DiCaprio, our second Leo clue. Started with Leonardo DiCaprio in her highest grossing worldwide movie. Gonna need an answer. Shutter Island. Shutter Island. Oh, I had Green Mile Shutter in my Island. head. I was so close. <laughs> oh, yeah. I totally forgot she was even in Shutter Island. For Joe, yes. Cheryl Hines. Cheryl Hines. What was her? The only movie I can movie. think of her in is Waitress. Um, hint. Catherine Heigl. Good friend, Catherine Heigl. Oh shit. Okay. Um, the Ugly Truth. Correct for ah! one point. <laughs> Thank you. Previous discussion. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Tara. Tim yeah. Roth. Tim Roth. Tim Roth. Hint. Mark Wahlberg, our second Wahlberg. Planet of the Apes. Correct. Nick Offerman for Joe. Nick Offerman. The upcoming 21 Jump Street. No. Um, (laughs) Nick Offerman. Oh, I I stand corrected. This is the lowest. uh, Hint, please. Jessica Alba. Nick Offerman, Jessica Alba. Jessica Alba, Fantastic Four. Sin City? Sin City is correct. Oh, made more than Finn. Or, well, no, it's Nick Hoffman, not Jessica Alba. Never mind. Parker Posey for Tara. Highest grossing worldwide movie for Parker Posey. Um, getting a lot of things that it's not. Yeah. yeah hint. Sure. Uh, this hint is a uh, good way to spend your money. A lot of ROI in this hint, I think. Yes. Brandon Ruth. Oh, Superman Returns. Nice. Correct. One point. Candace Bergen for Joe. Candace Bergen. Sex in the City. Nice. J.K. Simmons. Um, Spider-Man? Mm. No, are you serious? Spider-Man 3. Oh, 3. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Bruce Greenwood. Bruce Greenwood. Meek's cut off, not really. <laughs> um, Bruce Greenwood hints. Nicholas Cage. Bruce Greenwood. Nicholas Cage. National Treasure. Damn. <clears throat> Tara. Yep. I like this one. Bay Ling. Bai Ling. Bai Ling. Ling. Sorry. Mm. You want a clue for this one? Yeah. Will Smith. 
Therefore, it is not Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. That seriously is the only thing I could think of because I knew it wasn't. <laughs> I knew it wasn't Red Corner, and then I couldn't even remember if that was her. Yeah. Will Smith, is it a robot? Damn. That's a good guess, though. Wild Wild West. Oh wow! Wild never, Wild West. Never would have got that. Yeah. Wayne Knight for Joe. Jurassic Park. Yeah. Correct for two points for Tara. Viola Davis. Her highest grossing movie. Gonna need a hint? Yeah. Tom Cruise. Oh, good. Tom Cruise. And Viola Davis. (laughs) Yeah. In. Yep. Gonna need an answer? Day, uh, night and day. Night. Oh, God. Night, night and day. day. No, she was in that. Yeah, Neither did I, and I saw that movie. <laughs> For Joe, Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. Titanic. Don't get any bigger than that one. All right, here we go. That was our 30th question. You both have three more left. So, Tara, how many points do you have? 11. To Joe's? 15. Ooh, very close. Okay, so this one is for Tara. Yeah. Your character actor is Tim Curry. Tim Curry. He will be in practically anything. Tim Curry. Yeah, you got a I, video I, I, game I, that needs voicing. <laughs> you got, you know, cut the ribbon. Tim Curry's there. I need the hint. Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. yeah. Home Alone? Home Alone 2. Oh. Correct. Home Alone 2. For Joe, John Hawks. John Hawks. Contagion didn't make that much money this year. Identity didn't make that much money. Oh, God, Identity. Identity wasn't half bad, I thought, for a junk movie. No, uh, I'll take it. Like, you are wrong. <laughs> George Clooney. Hmm. George Clooney with John Hawks in this movie, yeah. grossing $330 million worldwide. Gonna need an answer. The Perfect Storm. The Perfect Storm is correct. Oh, right. God, I forget about that movie. Olivia Williams for Tara. Highest grossing movie. Well, it's obviously the Ghost Rider. Just kidding, not my real answer. Olivia Williams. And... Bruce Willis. The Sixth Sense. Correct for one point. Joe. John Malkovich. John Malkovich. Hint. Shyla Lebeuf. Um. Lebeuf. 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 The Beef. Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. So close. Transformers Dark, Dark of the, of the moon. moon. God. Yeah. All right. That was, oh God, $1.1 billion. God. Holy smokes. We were partially responsible for that. <laughs> Your last... No, we never saw that last one. You saw the second one. We saw the second one. No, we never saw one. the Dark of the Moon. Oh. That's the third one. Oh, well, so I would have been wrong with the Stanley Tucci <laughs> one anyway, because he was in the third one. Yes? Stephen Lang. Um, Avatar. Correct for two points. Oh, so close. Joe's last one, Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara. $477 million for this block okay. of basta. I'm going to say Home Alone 1. 
correct for two points. Nicely done, Joe. Just final score break. Joe won, but by how much, we wonder. <laughs> I had 17. To Tara's. Oh, right. That was two points. Yeah. To my 14. All right. Well done, Mr. Joe. Good job, Joe. Thank you. Shits and giggles. Sure. Ready? Sure. Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. Casino Royale? Yeah, nice. that was oh, right. Very good. Joe. All right, guys, that's it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. Whether it is a 555 number, the inability to convincingly tell a lie, an ohum attitude towards The Hobbit, or a red-hot hatred of Channing Tatum, we discovered 16 reasons why you are not a crackpot. We played the character actor Bafo box office quiz no small part in game time where Joe came out number one for the weekend. Ah. We're on Twitter at Extra Hot Podcast. <laughs> we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash extra hot great and our site extra hot great We hope you enjoyed our second You Are Not a Crackpot episode. And if you have one of your own to record, do that and send it our way. Remember, we're listening. I am David T. Cole on behalf of Tara Ariano. Joe Reed. I love you, Channing Tatum. Thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll see you right here next time on Extra Hot Great. This episode was possible thanks to Mark, Robbie, Noah, Joe, Cat A, Cat H, Sean, Tara, Chisholm, Peter, Steve, Corey, Michael, Taylor, Glenn, <laughs> the New York Metro Transit Authority, TikTok Diner, and Islands Burgers and Shakes. Hi, this is Monty from Seattle. I am not a crackpot, but there should be a law against having a scene after the end credits of a movie. I have no more patience for sitting through 10 minutes of all the names of all the people that work at all the special effects houses in the world just so I can see another 15 seconds of movie you couldn't be bothered to fit in with the rest of it. And for every bonus scene I see, I have to sit through ten sets of end credits that don't have anything after them. I'm done. From now on, when the credits start, the movie is over. I'm I am not, not a crackpot. A crackpot. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs>